Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. Hello, welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. How have you been? I mean, do I say this every time? I feel like I repeat myself. But but anyway, I, I've been well. I've been really, really enjoying autumn. Oh my god, the season changing in this the season's changing in this country. It's like no other. It's so stunning with the the, the sun coming through the trees and the the leaves gently falling on the London pavements. Hey, you know, wherever you are, I'm in the UK, around the world. Let's talk about the seasons changing. We should do that more, you know? God bless the beautiful countryside. Anyway, guys, I'm bringing you a chat this week with the wonderful Mike Goldsworthy. Uh, he's part of an organisation called Scientists for EU. We chat about, obviously, um, the scientific element of Brexit obviously politically um, not the actual you know denominations of, of different uh, protons and what have you and how they feel about brexit because you know that would be weird I mean no one no one could ever know how a proton feels about brexit I mean th- th- unless unless you do, if you know how protons feel about brexit then write in to the show you can do that the usual ways uh, the limehouse podcast at gmail.com or you can hit us up on Twitter. And I, I, I do enjoy Twitter, as Tom Turtle and uh, Steve Little and, and many others will will hold testament to. So that's available for you at, Lime, at Limehouse Pod. That's our, our handle, at Limehouse Pod. And obviously you can find us on Facebook, the Limehouse Podcast. And why wouldn't you? Why, I'll tell you what, why wouldn't you leave a review for us on iTunes? That would be really lovely. You know, we, we, you can find us there. Always, we're always going to be there, you know, and on SoundCloud as well. Leave reviews, share, share, share this wonderful free gift to the world. That's uh, Rosie jangling her lead, her, her collar rather, in the background there. The lovely Rosie. She's not actually political. She she's kind of more of a mascot. Um, she you know flew her over from Thailand, and she she had a little. She has little or no say in being in in this in this room whilst I record. And she's cleaning herself now at the moment. Anyway, um, so enjoy enjoy this chat. It, it it it's a lot. It's a nice long one. We really get into it. And and Mike is is a highly intelligent, amusing, um, to the point guy. And he's got obviously no political agenda. So he, uh, you know, well, he, of course he's got a political agenda, but he's he's not you know hold and hold fast to uh, a political party. So he just says it how it is. And my God, he's got a sexy voice. So. Guys, listen out for that. It's a very, very nice voice. Uh, yeah, enjoy yourself, and I'll see you on the other side. And, yeah, just to let you know, we, we do jump straight in talking about Vince Cable, because where else in the world would you start other than Vince Cable? Vince is like one of those guys who's, who's absolutely adored, yep. right? Or, I don't know about adored, but he's, he's looked at with quite a lot of... Uh, grace and yeah. people respect him. He's got a lot of gravitas. He was certainly um, a big thing when the Lib Dems came into power in the coalition. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously the uh, the tuition fees sort of really hit his reputation hard, and that's yeah. that's a problem now because the Lib Dems need something of a new surge or a new angle, and using sort of yesterday's men for that doesn't quite work. Well, you see, that's that's the thing. And, and I think a lot of people are looking at liberal politics. They're looking at, not everyone, but perhaps a little bit people that spend more like 20 minutes looking at politics a week as opposed to all of one minute a, yeah, a, a yeah, year. Yeah. Um, they're looking at people like Macron and um, people like um, Justin Trudeau, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And they're going... We'd like a bit of that. When yeah. is that coming to us? Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. like, well, the thing is, it's not... Yep. Um, and, it, and if it is, then you better start rattling that piggy bank and finding where that dude's going to come out, or hopefully yep. that woman, yep. you know, which would be even better. Yeah. 
But um, anyway, that's I mean, Lib Dems have a little bit of a problem with kind of like, what are their other policies that get people fired up? And I'm, right. I'm passionately pro-Remain, but it does no, seem... No, really? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it does seem like a single-issue thing, mm. whereas with Labour, it's integrated with the package deal of, you know, anti-austerity yeah. and, um, you know, all of that traditional anti-Tory stuff. Yeah. So I think, I mean, if, if the Lib Dems thought about a few different angles to surprise people, then suddenly it's not just about um, saying stop Brexit and we're just going to stop, but rather we'll make it into a creative solution and a creative vision as to how we move forward. Because there are a lot of people who um, would have voted for Brexit that might now be starting to get for cold feet, but they don't want to go back to the status quo, as yeah. it was before. You know, they wanted to shake up the system for a reason. And so so now what, what are the new creative solutions, yeah. for example? Yeah, well, well, this is it. And I think mm. that we were drawn into that. But it was, I don't think it was intentional from Theresa May or, or Corbyn or any, any of like that when the general election was called. We just, it was just, we were just sucked into that black hole. Yeah. And we just disappeared. Yeah. Um, the reason for that is that it was a snap election that no one had prepared for, not even Theresa May, evidently. Yeah. So uh, the chances of the Lib Dems coming from sort of low boil to actually overtaking the other two parties within the five weeks that were on the table yeah. was absolutely a non-starter. People didn't even bother thinking about that. Uh, they thought that it wasn't likely to happen at all for Labour. They thought Labour were going to be buried and then they'd be out for a generation. And that was their major concern because then Theresa May gets a mandate for hard Brexit and other parties are wiped off the table. So then what do you do with that? Well, you can't put together a coalition. You know, there's not enough time for a joint manifesto. Yeah. OK, tactical voting it is. Where Lib Dems are ahead, we back them. Where Labour's ahead, we back them. It just so happens that Labour yeah. tend to be ahead and far more places than Lib Dems because of the history recently. Yeah. And so that's why the Conservatives went from 37% of the vote to, um, what was it, 40% of the vote. Yeah, yeah. Or 42%, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Um, but still lost seats. Yeah. Whereas both Lib Dems and Labour gained seats because votes were used more smartly. But still, because of all of those dynamics, it wasn't enough to give the Lib Dems a big surge. Yeah, because exactly. it was just like anything we can do to break Theresa May's mandate for a hard Brexit, we'll take it, even if it's backing Labour, despite what they've said about Brexit in their manifesto, we don't care. We know that fundamentally um, their heart's not really in um, this kind of bizarre hard Brexit where you believe, you know, the people who've got the Tory party by the, by the throat do yeah. believe it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So that's the complex dynamic. Yeah, but it's very, it's a very interesting one. Mm. It's not slightly scary. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, we, I, I'd, I want to ask like how like your 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 path in into science, other yeah. than like you know picking up like I don't know photosynthesis when you were a child or something. Yeah. But like, when did it? Was it a university? Obviously, university. But was yeah. it always like a huge passion when you were a kid? Um. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was a kid, I remember uh, my, uh, I, I told my parents that I wanted to be um, a, a clown, a painter, and the ruler of the world, or something like okay. that. Okay, um, yeah. But I was also always fascinated by animals, but then I always loved, you know, the arts. Yeah. And when I got to about 16 and I was deciding on my A-levels, um, all my teachers were trying to push me into the arts because they thought that I was good at, at acting, at the creative writing, at painting yeah. and all that. But I wanted to do science because I thought I want more knowledge about the world. I want to actually build the knowledge, all, all this other stuff, you know, stuff that you can do in your spare time. And then my English teacher told me, yeah, you know what, that's right, because there have been plenty of people that have gone through careers developed in science and then come back to the arts but you can't do it the other way around no and so armed with that i then went in and did my a levels in uh, maths chemistry biology and french for a while which i then dropped off and then i went to university to do um, uh, natural sciences at cambridge okay yeah um, because that was a big pick and mix course i'd actually been quite anti-elitist and you know anti-oxford and anti-cambridge but then i saw the course and i thought that's exactly what i want to do <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll give it a go yeah and um and and i got in and then from natural sciences in cambridge 
I was thinking about what now, you know, mm. management consultant. I don't want to be a banker, but, you know, so then I was trying out for these jobs in, you know, consultancy because that's, mm. you know, what you do. And, um, but I wasn't getting anywhere with them. And then someone came to lecture at our university and he was doing lectures on psychology and genetics and psychiatry and genetics. And I just completed in uh, psychology um, after having dropped genetics along the way on the course uh, because I was torn between the two. So okay. then I saw them come both together. So I was like, do you do PhDs in this? Yeah. And he said, well, this is why I'm, you know, coming and talking here because I'm on a recruitment drive. Oh, wow. So then uh, that was that was Robert Plowman. He was um, a big American guy um, being brought up mainly in Texas. He was about 6'4", big white beard. He looked like wow, Zeus. Wow, it sounds right? like something out of a film. Yeah, he, I mean, it, uh, he is out of a film and because he's got this really strong presence as well. Right. And softly spoken. And then Don't that, fuck with science, kids. Yeah, yeah. like that, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and so I went and did a, a PhD with him um, wow. in uh, developmental psychology, you know, children's developmental psychology and genetics. And then there was adolescent psychiatry and genetics and then went into all during my PhD, animal behavior and genetics behind it. And the last one was what I completed on. And then I went off to uh, Switzerland to do animal behavior because they did a lot of wild animal behavior as well and naturalistic animal behavior. And they had this field station in Russia uh, out in the western woods of Russia oh my God. where the electricity came from a, a little uh, turbine and uh, there was no running water. We got it from the lake <laughs> and uh, once in a while our, our research group would drive to the local village, long drive to the local village to pick up cans of stuff and they were all suspicious of us because they knew that we were kind of like geneticists as well as animal behaviorists so thought right. why come to Russia? They're probably making mutant creatures out there. <laughs> like a film, right? But yeah, but, yeah. but, but really it was... It it was um, just that you could have these big pads where you could study um, uh, wild rodents. There are people there studying wolves and bears um, as well. So it was cool to hang out with them. So your background is, is animal uh, as well as, I mean, I had you down as sort of more of a test tube kind of guy, but clearly you're more of a... I, I, did, I did the test tube stuff in yeah. the labs with molecular genetics, then went into animal behavior and how, all of that. How old are you? And then 41. Okay, because you sound like you could be about 85 with the amount of stuff you've done already. <laughs> So, I, uh, I, move, I, move, I moved around a lot yeah. in, in science because then I went on to, to Slovenia where I did um, health services research and medical informatics. So then I started getting into all of the stuff that went, then went on to analysing the NHS, analysing health systems and science policy. And then that's what got me into scientists for labour, then spinning out scientists for EU. So that's, yeah. that's the path through, that's the progression, that's Jeez. my full history now. Cause so did you make any uh, animal friends when you're out there? Did you did you, did you like um, make pets of any wolves or bets bets bears even? Um, there was uh, this this uh, baby wild mouse. So what happened was uh, one of the wild mouse that, mice that we trapped, you know, um, in order to have them within a you know an area and study their their natural foraging behaviour. We caught her when she was uh, pregnant um, and. There were various that we caught when they were pregnant. They had their babies fine. This one was all freaked out, and she abandoned her babies. So I tried to, you know, put them back in her nest, and she was rejecting them. So then I, I took one that had been abandoned, and because she was rejecting them, I put them in with a family of voles that had had a litter, <laughs> and it grew up just fine. And I took her out once in a while, and she was a bit of a runt because obviously she'd been abandoned for a while, and. As she was adorable, she was tiny and she would just go to sleep on my hand. Oh. And I could put her in my pocket. And, no uh, way. Yeah, it, it totally, it was so sweet. So like, like, like really that big. Yeah. I'm, the, the picture that I'm painting, like um, your painting of, of yourself to me is like sort of like you're in a uh, Bond film. We discussed this, a Bond thing earlier. Mm -hmm. And maybe um, you're in a bunker and you're the good scientist. While all the other scientists are like, doing crazy shit to animals you're the one that's letting the mice fall asleep in your hand and going no we must save mother earth and the other guys are like running around with laser beams and stuff that's exactly but. how it was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they just took the laser guns to all the trees and animals there it was yeah. terrible no yeah they, um, they were the, lovely people there are some actual genuine questions i wanted to ask okay, you yeah. but i just thought it might be fun to just start on a nicer nicer note 
But um, yeah, I mean, I'll probably put a sting here before we launch into this serious stuff. But um, so the I suppose um, the one the one thing I think I you, you came to my attention when I was at a pro um, EU march. Yeah. Um, crikey, when was it now? It was a while ago now, actually. But mm-hmm. you spoke on on the stage in Westminster yep. Square. Yeah. Um, and it was it was a lot about uh, protecting uh, EU citizens. Yes. What what in the scientific community? What are what are the main concerns in terms of uh, e- EU citizens at work here? Yeah. And, and and that bargaining chip, use, using those workers as a bargaining chip, is that softened yet under this? at all under this current government since the recess or um not much i mean here's the thing which is immediately after the vote to leave the eu we surveyed the science community and the science community is it's an international community it's got people from all over the world lots lots of uh you know brits americans people from elsewhere in the eu you know just from all over the world and um, the immediate response, because we were asking them about impact already felt, and of course there was impact already felt from collaborations that were being put together where then the UK partners were getting dropped off. There were people who had been planning to come to the UK that then cancelled it because of Brexit. Yeah. Other people who took up jobs elsewhere, jobs frozen, in investments frozen, uh, and general life disruptions because of the uncertainty. But a lot of people also wanted to say that they were utterly disgusted with the tone of the referendum debate, not just with the anti-expert stuff, which, you know, really took us aback, but also all the xenophobic stuff. And that, when you think about those Vote Leave posters of 75 million Turks are coming to our country to, you know, eat our babies and eat our NHS kind of stuff, all the stuff peddled on Leave.eu, social media, um, which was conflating... Um, fear about um, Islamification with the EU and showing emotive videos of riots and things like that. And also when people walk down the street and see all the tabloid press outside the news agents, immigrants, 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 EU, EU, um, they really didn't like the tone of that. And even though they felt safe in labs and stuff, they would report that they um, were nervous of their accent when going out into uh, towns or, or further into the countryside, or some of them reported abuse that they had felt. So mm. those that had young families here as well, saying that they didn't want to bring up their kids in this kind of toxic environment, and they felt it was getting that way. This is all before bargaining chip stuff. This yeah. is all before you had the likes of uh, Liam Fox saying that their rights and their lives were one of our major cards. Mm. So when that happened as well, along with Theresa May in that uh, October 2016 speech of saying... Conference, uh, yeah. Yeah, people who claim to be citizens of the world are citizens of nowhere. That hits in the science community very hard because that's exactly what we are. There are no foreigners in science. We are all one big global family looking to do good, whether it be in health, whether it be environment, whether it be in kind of like new tech and, you know... Yeah, absolutely. And so... It was. It's. It's not so much the actual um, deals on the table for EU citizen rights now, which are which are poor and which are substandard. But it's more the tone with which all of this is discussed. You'll be all right. You'll be fine. But at the same time, don't they burden our systems? Don't they depress our wages when they know full well that they don't? Yeah. Um, but it's easier to say that to deflect attention from the government. So all of that tone is what makes it toxic for um, citizens from um, elsewhere in the world, particularly for those from the EU yeah. that see this this hostility. And, um, you know, these are, these are bright, mobile people. They can work anywhere they want in the world. You know, it is their choice. But they came to this country with love in their hearts, with a willingness to work hard, with a passion for this country. Mm. And this welcoming country that they once knew is now changing on them. So what do they... What, what do you... I, mean, I don't... I, I, Obviously, it's quite hard for you to speak for all scientists. Yeah. But what what is the outside perception of, let's say, take it in two parts, the outside perception perception of the British scientific research, the work that's done in the British scientific community pre and post Brexit? So like pre Brexit. So the reputation of of British science, as it were, and the British science community. Mm. Um, 
Well, as, as someone said um, in a BBC article after the referendum debate that, that Britain has gone from being cool to very not cool overnight. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I think exceptions are made within the global science community for the British science community. I mean, they know that we think differently from the government because, you know, we were very pro-EU, we're very um, pro-internationalism, um, and uh, they know that we've been caught in this situation and we were fighting hard to um, not have... British international science and our role in the global community damaged by this. Mm. Um, so they still respect British science and want to work with British science. However, coming to Britain and working in science has obviously taken a hit because we mm. keep getting stories all the time about, well, just the other day someone was telling me that, that uh, a leading university, and I won't say which one, has one of their top professors telling her that this is terrible. We always used to get the cream of the crop. Now we can't get the top layer in because they don't want to come. So we're going for people that are second choices. Yeah. 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 No, well, that, that's, that's, that's my concern. I did have a, a question mm -hmm. about, um, you know, in terms of the um, coordinated efforts all the countries make together. Yeah. Um, and... And how now we 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 are separating ourselves, whether we like it or not. Some of us, you know, more than others, um, from from the European Union. Germany obviously makes um, some pretty incredible, um, what would I say, contributions? I suppose to the mm -hmm, science mm -hmm. world. Is there a danger of places that, that do it so do it well mm -hmm. are just simply there's going to be a brain drain from UK yeah. to Germany? for example? Um, not necessarily just Germany, because, I mean, if you remember, science is, is a rich ecosystem, and one lab in one country might be the world leader in something very specific and narrow. Yeah. So this notion that, you know, everyone wants to go to Cambridge or everyone wants to go to Max Planck Institute in, in uh, Germany is, is not quite the case. It's more nuanced than that. But, yes, we're seeing a brain drain already. I mean, the, the UK, in the latest round of ERC grants just came top again. They, they slipped for a while and came top again. So that was good to see. Um, and I so think... So the ERC for the so layman. So European Research Council grants. Yeah. And um, they are like the real gold stars um, that we collect in our universities and everyone does across Europe. So, I mean, we still have some top institutions that will stay top institutions because they are globally recognised. Mm -hmm and they still will pull in some of that talent. I worry more about the middle-band universities that aren't so much part of the old boys network in the UK and were looking to European grants because they're actually, in their view, more equitable, and they were also drawing in more European students just because... Um, it's more affordable, it, yeah, it, yeah, they're paying at the same rate that we are, and the access was easy, and then you can yeah. set up jobs. And so they might get hit and I mean we're, we're seeing something of um, a brain drain already sort of slow hemorrhage under the radar and um, it will go on that way until we can change the tone of the whole things and make sure that that, that, that um, rights are guaranteed and the networking capacities with the rest of Europe are guarantees, mm. guaranteed and all of that gets rebuilt yeah um, and obviously you touched on grants there. What? So I know that there was a Patrick Stewart campaign, a pro-EU campaign that said, you know, what has the EU ever done for us? Yeah. What has the EU ever done for the science community of, the, of Great Britain? Right. OK. So the main thing is, um, the big one, is multinational collaborations. Now, multinational collaborations have a lot more impact than domestic-only research. Um, so, for example, just any straightforward international collaboration will have 40% more impact than domestic-only research and growing. And it allows us to put together dream teams of whomever we want to work with, not just across Europe, but then also across the globe. So science is a global network, but the EU is increasingly becoming a hub for multinational science. Europe as a whole produces 39% of the world's scientific output. America's on 25%, Japan's on 
China's on 20%, and in fact the gap between Europe and the US is growing in terms of output and also in terms of researcher base. So it's a fantastic ecosystem. Now there are some parts of the ecosystem that are not EU, like for example the European Space Agency, not EU, or CERN, not EU, even though there are overlaps with it. Yeah. Other research networks that are not part of the EU, but the EU has been a real glue in actually taking this multinational model and saying, you know what, we're all going to pool money so that we can do the full range of science in any constellations of labs that you want to put together. Mm. Now, if we didn't have that pot of money, imagine how you try to go about doing multinational research. You, me, and, and seven others in different countries all want to work together. So you have to run off to your government. I have to run off to my government. Five others have to run off to their government. All the governments work on different timings. They all fund different things. They've all got a 20% chance of getting their money from their government. 20% to the power of seven is, like, not happening. Yeah. So... But in Europe, it happens in this multinational format all the time. And that's why Europe has been an absolute resurgent hub for science recently. That's the main thing. There's also the high-level grants that the EU provides, whether it be Mary Curie grants or European Research Council grants, those ERC grants. Half of the high-level grants that we have now in the UK are EU grants, and those two grant streams are the most recognisable. You ask people, you know, what's a top-level individual grant, and they'll say Mary Curie and ERC, and they'll be tough, uh, working hard to think of another one, like right. a national one. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the policy and the regulations. With policy, we all set policy together, as in we do what we want on the national level, but then we get together on the international level and say, well, hold on a sec, what should we all be doing together with open data? What should we all be doing together with rare diseases? Because there are low numbers of these people in each and every country. So let's combine the patient groups, let's combine the standards. Yeah. And that leads into regulations, which means if we all abide by the same regulations, then those barriers are down because we're all playing by the same standards. And that isn't that cross-border kind of like, well, what system do you work on and what system do we work on? Right. Okay. So all of that together has lowered barriers to innovation, lowered barriers to um, access of, of collaboration, and then you add in free movement, and basically you've, you've got a recipe for, for massive success. And the UK now um, has more impact per head of researcher than the US does, the UK does, and that was attributed by a government report in 2013 to our new international dimension because now over 62% of the output that we produce is in collaboration with yeah. other countries. Yeah. And that's just rocketed up since the, uh, the late 80s. So that's how it all works together. It's, it's a hub. It's an ecosystem. And that cohesion of effort just shows that the teamwork works yeah and now we're being pulled from the driving seat of that team because we really have been in the driving seat sort of cast by the side of the road and now trying to work out how we we get back in with our with our colleagues with our team yeah no no i i, I get that i mean what's the i mean once we're once we're out i mean there are organizations you know that are quite excited i spoke to peter not so or petter not so long ago mm -hmm like him or love him or whatever or if you don't care about them who who yeah. knows but um they, they were optimistic about the opportunities of reform uh once we're out or once we i don't know re not rejoining but you know sort of like reprogramming rebooting mm -hmm. the uh, some of the animal rights issues what are the there must be some optimism in the in the scientific community about brexit surely so um with issues like that when you make your own rules that's a double-edged sword and we've just written a paper for the lancet that covers health on that issues when you're making your own laws um, it could be a stimulant for improving everything but then you also face opposing forces that would want to deregulate and um, i'm sure petter's opposition will be looking at how you can roll back standards in order to make a faster buck. The thing is, when you're part of an international framework, it might not be quite at the level you would idealistically like, but yeah. it's solid. And it's agreed by 28 different democratic countries, and it lasts a long time. I see. Okay. So it's that yeah. robustness versus um, you know, the uh, ability that it might go either way. 
What I think is the the biggest benefit of uh, Brexit in general is the education that we're all getting about the frameworks that we've built up over the last 40 years. So before we had the referendum debate, people just didn't know about mm. the single market, the customs union, freedom of movement rights, and um, and Euratom, uh, and uh, all the different aspects, uh, European Medicines Agency, uh, European Banking Authority, all, all the yeah. different things yeah. that had been built together sort of under the radar as far as they were aware. And they didn't know about the European structure with the Parliament, Council, That's and That's the fault of politicians, commissioned. though, right? Got to be. And, and and our media mainly yeah. our media because if there are all these laws coming into our country all the time from the EU, evil laws pour down upon us from above. Right. Is the imagery given rather than kind of like we're a team of people and then we have this central resource where we agree things. Right? Yeah. But if that's not covered, what are the new laws coming in? It's basically you know standards for new products and things like that that we all think okay that's sensible rubber stamp that. Yeah. But if that's not covered, then. Um, then if it's not part of our news, then it feels like foreign news, and mm. it does feel like an imposition. So I think now people are seeing, for example, Juncker's State of the European Union. Everyone was watching that. The right wing were watching that in order to try and find the phrases that they could twist yeah. to say, look, it's going super federalist. Isn't it lucky that we're getting off in time? Yeah. And, uh, you know, other people watching it to see, you know, where they're going and how we're going to relate to them in... So and now we care about the elections in Germany. We cared about the Austrian elections. We cared about France. We cared about Heert Wilders in the Netherlands. We yeah. start knowing more now about yeah. us in the European context. So for me, that's been good and that's been useful. Um, I mean, in terms of science, are there any other things that are good? You can say that it, it kicks our butt to go and make more science links across the rest of the world. I mean, those doors were always open. You could say that it allows us to do some of our own regulations on, for example, um, GMOs, where the EU as a whole has been quite restrictive, or maybe in some, you know, uh, clinical areas. Yeah, I mean, maybe, and maybe collaboratively with the EU, we could be an innovation test box and mm -hmm. close collaboration with them and say, you know what, we're a bit more liberal on this front, we'll give it a go and then work with you on whether you want to adopt it or whether you want to learn lessons from us, if we were to do that in a collaborative way, then that would be an opportunity for, you know, from that. But it's an unknown, this right? is, Yeah, it's an unknown, and it's, and it's terribly small compared to what we've got at the moment. So basically, if Brexit is not stopped because everyone throws their hands in the air and says this is a cluster mess um <laughs> so you can swear if you like Mike. <laughs> yeah i've tried to train myself not to yeah um then if we were to brexit the sensible way to do it would be at least at first go into the eea into efta and say we're still part of the european family as a whole we still have a collaborative approach we still want to be part of this market as well as doing our our own outreach rather than with trade deals around the world rather than as a team um, in EFTA, you're dropping the fishing and you're dropping the farming commitments because um, those are two communities that didn't want to stay in the EU for the most part. Okay, farming was 50-50 divided. Really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. fishing wanted out. Um, but then communities that want to be in and part of it, such as science and tech and health, get to be. And then we can, we can find our footing there and, and have a look-see about... Whether we want to reshape things within EFTA ourselves as best we can, or whether we want to make a complete withdrawal from there. But that would be the sensible step-by-step -step way to go about it that keeps everyone on board. What we're seeing at the moment is something of a right-wing neoliberal hijack, which is just plain anti-EU, and let's pull the plug on 12 different systems at the same time oh, and yeah. cross our fingers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, can you realistically see that happening? Like a nice little... Uh, transition into EFTA, um, you know, existing outside the Eurozone, et cetera, et cetera. Can you really see see that without, you know... It would be the pragmatic like... thing to do. Um, and it would keep our power within Europe because then everyone would be fascinated by what we're doing within Europe but outside the EU framework. And we could we would still be part of a lot of the schemes associated with the single market and free movement. And look, I mean, Tony Blair was absolutely uh, right. 
uh, when he said that we can have much stricter immigration control and stay within the EU. I mean, we can have much stricter immigration control and just keep the freedom of movement framework. So that means we all keep our rights to roam like lions across the rest of the continent, setting up bank accounts anywhere, buying houses, settling down, going to university, transferring pensions, all of that. And at the same time, we could do like Switzerland does, which is new people come into the country, you have to register if you're going to work there. I worked in Switzerland, I did that. I didn't register myself within seven days, I think it was eight days, and I got fined. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. and then you've got the three-month rule, so you could have a straightforward system whereby anyone coming into the country from the EU, give them a little piece of paper, the piece of paper says, welcome to the UK, you can do whatever you like here for three months as yeah. long as it's legal, after which, if you want to stay, just call this number to say that you can support yourself and provide means that you can do, or tell us what job you've got. Yeah. And, and then, if you don't do that, if you try and get back out, this will be registered with your passport, and you'll have problems coming back. Yeah. It's that simple. It is. And then also with Switzerland, here's another thing. <laughs> yeah. Because local communities are important, and supporting jobs in your local community is important. When the Swiss had their vote to roll back on free movement and do a quota system. Then they were out of the science program for a while. Then they negotiated with the EU. They said, look, we care about jobs for our locals. Can we say jobs have to be advertised nationally and locally first? Yeah. And then if they can't be filled, then advertise elsewhere in, in the EU. Yeah. And the EU said, yeah, you know what? Go for it. Yeah, that makes sense. That's fine. Yeah. So they did that with Switzerland. We could get the same thing. And doesn't that tick like all the boxes. I, and then we get to keep the whole framework that empowers all of our citizens to do as we please across the continent. There are headbangers, though. I mean, I think it's, it's yeah, that, that makes sense. I just think that there's there's a, one problem, or perhaps two. The headbangers are hard Brexiteers in this country, and then the, the EU, perhaps the EU um, parliamentarians that have... They've, they've got a reason to be tough, right? Because they don't want us... It's the same old line. I know it's, I'll repeat it again, but it is the same old line of we don't want to see a country leave the European Union and for it, for them, for it, be, for it to be better for them. Yeah. You know, so it's... I, I mean, I... And I, I just, just to I finish, I don't, with, think, yeah. I don't think they've got... We've got negotiators of that of that standard. Yeah. What you're describing, I don't think we have negotiations negotiators of that standard to be able to get what you described yeah which is great i'm all for it but i just don't think we've got them yeah i think that is a bit of a flaw i mean as as to the as to the notion that the eu wants to see us fail there may be a few individuals who are like that but i think for the most part um and i think Juncker's a bit of a prat so he might be <laughs> of that kind of mindset but i think for the most part because the EU is doing better now and yeah. their economy is growing, there is no there is no need for a dog in the manger attitude or bitterness. They can see and they see with horror where we're going. You know, they used to think that we were pragmatic and successful and diplomatic and intellectual and full of capacity. And they're looking at our government now thinking, holy crap, this looks a bit toxic. How do we just sort it out? And the reason why they're fixated on um, sorting the bill at the moment is for a couple of reasons. Firstly, um, they don't want blackmail. They don't want us saying, well, we'll honour um, pensions if you give us further access or we'll continue to pay into this scheme if you give us access to that scheme and all that horse trading. They want to settle the separation so it gets to a case of you owe us nothing, we owe you nothing. Okay, now let's talk about how we can do trade deals without any of, of, of that hanging over. And then the other reason is that they want minimum fuss for themselves. You know, yeah. they've set a budget from 2014 to 2020. We all signed off on it, Britain too. Um, and so if we just complete on it like we said we would, and also I know on 14th of June 2016, Vote Leave said that they would pay into EU programmes until 2020. They made a pledge on that. Michael Gove signed it, Boris Johnson, John Whittingdale, Priti Patel, Dominic Rabb, the lot of them signed it. Um, they just want to say, look, you cover that, 
like Van Rompuy said recently, cover that, cover the bill, mm-hmm. you know, you get benefits from that, of course, because you're in the scheme. If that's covered, then it doesn't disrupt everything else that everyone else has planned on, and you can pretty much have the kind of Brexit you want. You show that you honour it, we get rid of obligations, it isn't disruptive to anyone else, and then let's talk about the good stuff because we're growing well and, you know, we just want to keep things tidy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've got a couple of uh, questions from... Uh Limehouse podcast listeners. Uh, mm-hmm. This one's from Matthew Wiseman. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a science dude, so mm-hmm. it's wise man. Mm-hmm. Um, Indeed. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty bad at reading out questions. But anyway, yep. what will happen about Horizon 2020 funding? And the second part of the question is redistribution across EU minus UK, potentially leading to more competition overseas? Mm-hmm. Um, so what will happen with... Horizon 2020 is usually how people call it. Um, We don't know yet. The government put out a position paper, um, what, a couple of weeks ago now, on science and their plan for the future. And it expressed, as we expected, um, a strong desire for us to keep everything that we've got going now in science. Because that's what the vast majority of the science community want. um, And the government sees science centrally and knows the benefits of the EU for, for all the reasons that I gave you before. The, yeah, right. the teamwork works, right? right? Yeah. Um, but what they didn't do in that paper is they didn't acknowledge what the obstacles were and didn't provide solutions to overcome them. So it's kind of like right intention, but crikey, we're running out of time. There's a shed load on the plate that we have to get through. This is going to drop off unless we have solutions to fix it quickly. Solutions uh, need to tackle three key problem areas. One is how much we pay in to Mm -hmm. to make it fair. Two is whether we respect the European Court of Justice at the project level. Switzerland, which buys in from outside, does. So issues with projects, for example, when they're audited by the Commission, are sorted out at ECJ level. And then the third one is free movement. There are some countries that are associate members on horizon 2020 and they don't do free movement but they tend to be israel and tunisia outside geographical europe yeah when switzerland had their thing with with free movement and reneged on their contracts they were out of the science program for a while then they negotiated a partial deal and then when they stayed within free movement but within those modifications they welcomed fully back in so that will be seen as the precedent for us so that we're not playing and benefiting from this big scheme but on our own rules yeah so um and then with money the question becomes not just paying in to cover our own way but other countries such as uh, Germany and, and France, etc., their net contributors, and part of their net contribution goes to struggling European countries and their research and innovation capacity, so they get to be kept in that team so that they're not brain-drained and starved out okay. and losing out on infrastructure. Yeah. So part of playing in the team is helping out the weaker members because it's long-term investment that builds up our shared capacity and shared power. That's the philosophy behind it. It parallels the philosophy of the single market where you've got investment into all of the weaker regions. It's so... So that it's all fair and balanced. You do put it quite poetically. Like, you you put it in a really good way. I think it's just... I think it just gets jazzed up in so many... Not jazzed up, but, like, you know, it becomes quite sinister and intense. And I think what you've described there is actually some of the lovely attributions of of the European Union and how it was, yeah, it was post-Second World War, tried to keep everyone together and stop killing each other. Yeah. But then as it evolved, yeah, you know, there are some you know lesser greater points that have happened but by and large it is just trying about build community yeah and it's called the european community and so when you hear those few socialists that rail against the single market and say that it's a neoliberal project you just think well where else in the world do you have a market that has got so much socialist principles in such as protecting workers' rights, such as redistribution to regions so that no matter where you're brought up, you have a fair chance at having access to the infrastructure and the jobs. You know, who else uses collective bargaining on the international level against multinationals and in order to get preferential trade deals? If the EU is being accused of protectionist, being protectionist of some of its core industries, is this not you know, fundamentally quite socialist in all those attributes. So mm. it, it it surprises me 
I think when, it, it probably needs to go further in some attributes of that, like in terms of like redistribution of wealth to some of the poorer countries in Europe. But mm. I think it's it's just, not, but it's not poorer countries; it's regions. It's on a regional basis. Yeah. Um, so I they're really looking there, yeah. at, at yeah. the towns and, and regions that that are struggling. Yeah. And they've done more than our government has in the last few decades at actually putting investment, structured investment for growth, rather than just you yeah. know topping things up with a bit of welfareism. Yeah. No, 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 definitely. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's... And it's and it's a fundamental philosophy of the single market yeah. and everything that our countries have agreed together in order to have that team spirit and that community spirit yeah. that takes care of everyone within it. Yeah, it's a school mentality. You learn that at school, for Christ's sake. I was watching um, The Secret Lives of Five-Year-Olds last night on Channel 4 or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's just the same. But some of us just, I don't know, we get screwed up in the head and we just forget we forget along the way man um okay well, yeah people get cynical over time don't they and uh, you know a bit of cynicism isn't a bad thing but you gotta have some love to counterbalance well yeah it. you know um i've got a couple more questions we're, we're running to 42 minutes oh no there was a second part to that question which yeah. was about the redistribution yeah um yeah. do you think i addressed it directly or redistribution across e uh, across eu minus the uk okay so because the uk is, is a net contributor when if uh, the uk pulls the plug on that then that will cause a restructuring of finances across the eu yeah um in terms of all that kind of system, so that will force them to have, you know, a, a rethink and a restructure. Um, yeah. So yeah. Also, just before I forget, the, you do some really awesome YouTube videos, right? So, <laughs> you say right. You know, yes, I do. You do. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. I think I'm turning into an American. Yeah. And um, right. Um, and what, what, what was the look? So I was gonna. I'm I'm at pains to do Twitter because you start Twitter and you've got to do Facebook, then you've got to do YouTube, then you've got to do uh, Instagram. You've got to do all of them. But yeah. on you on on YouTube, what's the late? Where can first of all, where can people go to see your fan, fantastic tirades and mm-hmm. um, and the messages you you, you put out there because they're pretty cool. Thank you. Um, so started doing videos on Facebook, which is where we have our largest audience. We've got 230,000 followers on Facebook now. Yeah. So I do videos. What do you type in for, for that? Fa- so scientists for EU. Yeah. Um, and then those videos, after I upload them onto Facebook, uh, then copy them across onto YouTube. So um, we've, we've got less of a followership there, but I kind of archive them there. So again, search for scientists for EU on YouTube. Yeah. And then what I've taken to do recently is um, videos on Twitter. Now, you can only upload two minutes to Twitter, but if you use Periscope, that's a live video. You can interact with people, and yeah. that can go on for hours if you wish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if I want to, you know, uh, like have a whiskey in the evening, and then that something's bothering me, I can, I, I can just switch on the periscope, um, chat away, get some questions in, yeah. get something off my chest, and then I don't have to worry about any of the editing stuff later. So I, I tend to do quite a bit of that now as well. That's really cool. Because no, really that's interactive that. as well. So that's yeah. fun. And, you know, when you get the trolls popping in and asking me questions, it's like, go for it. I've thought all of this through. This is the only thing I do with my life these days. <laughs> Hit me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I know the feeling, mate. Um, yeah, no, I, I did want to maybe end on just like the really obvious point of who in part not part well yeah parliament in the world outside ngos and what have you and like-minded people mm-hmm. um who who is there in parliament that's really got your back here because i know like you know in terms of the science community yeah you know who's because right. i know um uh, leila moran uh, yep. um she spoke up she gave um her first question first question to prime yep. minister's question she is she way. is a new addition to parliament and a yeah. very welcome one because she is a scientist she's cool she gets it and she's active yeah. so um yeah yeah she's cool um with it there's also um uh, the MEPs um Richard Corbett and you can just lie. You can just make up a name. Yeah, no. I, I mean, like, it's, it's it's the MEPs, you know? Just start with all the A's. Do you like ab bar It'll come back to me in a sec. It doesn't really matter. I mean, if it doesn't... No, it does It does bother me now, of course. I talked... Oh, yeah. 
and Claire Moody, MEP, who's been an absolute star, particularly with issues on Euratom um, and uh, space, um, space research, space industry. And there is also the MP for Cambridge, Daniel Zeichner, mm -hmm. um, who's been great as well. Yeah. yeah. So, Zeichner. yeah. Yeah, you've got you've got Leila Moran for Oxford, and you've got Daniel Zeigner for Cambridge, and of yeah. course, you know they're they're all about the science as they should be. Yeah, and you guys have joined forces relatively recently with a lot of other um, uh, pro -Euro European um, I don't know campaign groups. Action yeah. groups. Yeah, ca yep. campaign groups. Yeah, campaigns. Was yep. it? Um, I've got a question here. Actually, um, was it healthier in the EU? Yep. European movement and Britain for Europe. Yeah. So you've all joined forces. Yeah, so healthier in the EU is actually ours, as in we span that out of scientists for EU during the referendum campaign, because I've got a background in health services research. I work with Professor Martin McKee, who is a professor of European health. And we said, right, this NHS angle that the um, Vote Leave campaign are trying to take we need to address that because the vast majority of people who actually work in NHS or mm. health um, at the top levels and analyze those systems say Brexit's going to be bad. So that one's ours. And we've teamed up with European Movement and Britain for Europe because basically people are demanding that. They're saying, look at all these campaigns out there. They're all seeming to be doing different things. Can't you all come together as one great campaign? Yeah. Well... There is a danger in having one great campaign. We had that before. Get that get Britain lost. Stronger in Europe yeah. was just a top-down Westminster effort twinned up with David Cameron that didn't give any exposure to any grassroots groups okay, yeah. and squashed them out. All the regional groups, all the sector groups, you know, got killed by that. And, um, if, and it was just bad because if you look at the Scottish referendum, you know, a whole set of different grassroots campaign can be innovative and they can be daring and they can run rings around you know a Westminster campaign but when you've got a whole playing field of all these different campaigns it can get a bit dizzying so now that they're grown to maturity we're trying to bring them together okay. we've been talking for a long time about how do we forge this into a grand alliance or something like that and politically it gets difficult because everyone's got their different funding and everyone's got their different ideas about messaging so the way we found that it really works is just doing joint initiatives and starting mm. to work together organically on this, yeah. on that, on that. So crowdfunding for a bunch of uh, rallies and parties and marches or events um, is what we start to do regularly. And, you know, then you start sharing messaging more, you start working together on a more regular basis, and it starts to come together more yeah. organically. Okay. Because it's quite exciting. I mean, do you guys... I mean, I don't know, a thought did flash into my head there about evol evolving into a proper political party, but... Maybe, so that's an maybe, interesting maybe issue because... you've got you a had... Macron in there somewhere. You might have a Macron or, um, do we want a Macron, but, uh, you know, a, a Trudeau or something like in, in, uh, in, in your realms. Well, I think the thing is we don't want a party straight away because then obviously... Um, loyalties and tribal loyalties associated with political parties is is what it is and also you're not going to have that in ready form in a way to actually be able to stop or significantly modify brexit before the next elections yeah um so what you do want is you want a movement okay. and you want a movement of people that brings the four new faces and new ideas um, and you can see lots of people emerging on social media um, that are more interesting to listen to than the politicians and the BBC journalists that we've got out there. You can just tell that they know more. Um, <laughs> you can tell that they're kind of like less smug and settled and they actually know their stuff. Yeah. And that's why, you know, their audiences are growing. They produce more viral posts. So you've actually got a new group of people coming through who actually do understand and can handle the Brexit complexity, yeah. and then you've got some politicians mouthing off on the BBC with interviewers sort of like asking them pretty unimpressive questions, yeah. and you just think, wow, where do I want to get my information from? So there's, there is a whole organic movement coming up that, that has lots of different regional groups. So, for example, the March in Manchester, you know, Manchester for Europe are going to get a big boost off that. For the Labour Party conference in Brighton, Brighton and Hove for EU are growing off that. You've got Bristol for Europe, you've got uh, Leeds for Europe, you've got Brum in EU, you've got yeah. Liverpool for Europe, and all these groups are growing, and it's really fun and it's exciting, and people like me go around 
around and give talks to them and things like that. And then so we've we've just got more bubbling up, more growing, uh, as well as lots of great individual commentators like um, uh, Joe Morm or, or Ian Dunt um, or Steve Analyst is his Twitter handle, you know, really coming to the fore yeah. with um, analysis that's that kind of makes all the Brexit stuff better because you enjoy the insight and you enjoy the understanding that you get right, from so it. What you Whereas said when earlier, you yeah. listen to politicians, you just get jaded, man. Oh, absolutely. Because they are cynical. Yeah, cynical. And a, a lot of them, like, you just tune into Parliament TV, which I do because I'm a geek, and they're, they're, doing their, they're doing their thing. Yeah, that is pretty geeky because not even I do that. Yeah, that is pretty <laughs> geeky. They were, I, was, I was listening to Tuesday or Monday's debate or, and Tuesday's debate on uh, Tuesday's committees and Monday it was on the repeal, repeal bill. Yeah. But I was like, how the... I'm falling asleep here. It's like, how do you... How are you expecting anybody to be passionate about politics or anything when yeah. you're just like... But not only that, but it's like you said, you know, they don't even seem to be very expert in their field. It's huge, huge they're, thing. They're not on top of it um, because they've got a ton of other responsibilities. Um, they can't go as deep as, you know, this this new group of uh, bruxitologists who are kind of like <laughs> emerging as yeah. it will. Um, but also they are uh, lazy in attitude about it. They think because they're the top politicians and politicians have a habit of being able to mouth off about anything that their, that their superficial analysis is good enough. Yeah. Um, but it's actually not because we are in a situation of complexity that we're not used to, that we haven't been in before. And all of these issues are multi-headed hydras. You, you open, you know, one... Right. You chop one head off and two new ones grow. You open one door and then you've got five to choose from. Then you go through another door, you know... All of these things would take a civil service 10 years to map out properly and put before a politician who then need to spend a lot of time to reading through in order to really understand what's going on. And we're yeah. doing all of this on the fly with 12 different systems in parallel from Euratom to Customs Union in the single market to the Northern Irish border to Open Skies Initiative to our medicines to health issues like the e-hit cards, to citizens' rights and free movement. All of these issues are gargantuan on their own terms. Yeah. And we're saying, oh, yeah, we, let's let's try and sort out the whole lot in 18 months and uh, crash out if we can't, but hey. Yeah, no, no, exactly. No, it's fun. no, it's really great to hear you talk like that. I think our listeners are really going to appreciate that a lot, actually. Um, because, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I do make the podcast... Uh, try and draw attention to or at least try and get in front of MPs yeah because that's where the focus naturally pulls towards sometimes yep but then um I do try and get out there and talk to people like yourself and then when you do you're like oh shit yeah they haven't got an agenda they don't have to worry about party lines and that kind of stuff yeah they so can you, talk a lot more freely yeah yeah, yeah. but um I you, mean one of the reasons for us doing scientists for EU right was also that as, as soon as we set up we talked to some of the long-standing science institutions and said you know what we all know that this would screw up British science, but we all know that the environment is so toxic that if you were to be pro-Remain as an organisation, then you get a lot of backlash, whereas yeah. we are a disposable campaign. We can say what everyone's thinking. Right. And then if I yeah. personally get back, well, you know, who cares? You know, he's yeah. just a... Uh, you know, just an individual, you know, and what is this new campaign? That... So a lot of them were relieved that we could take up that role and we could make those arguments. Yeah. And all they had to do is impartially provide data. Then we could go out and interpret it and put it in layman's terms. Like Gina Miller, for example, perhaps. I mean, yeah, Gina Miller, there's someone else who is not a politician at all. She is, um, she is just one of the public who um, happens to be personally empowered and capable of taking things on. Yeah. And... Um, and I know there are a lot of Brexiteers who think she's all about, you know, stopping Brexit and that kind of stuff. But Brexit has opened a Pandora's box of other issues and power grab is one of those other issues. And that's specifically what she's on. Yeah. And I think she's done a fantastic job of that to highlight that. Mm. Um, she is incredibly brave, especially when you consider the death threats and acid attack threats that she's had. Yeah. And yet she keeps going. Yeah, yeah. she's a total hero, absolute hero. Hey, so didn't I tell you it was good? It was good, huh? And we ended uh, ended up talking about Gina, Gina Miller at the end. The hero that is. God, I hope we get her on the show one day. That truly would be remarkable. But I think we've got a little, little way to go there. And, of course, if you do want 
slightly more prestigious guests on the show, then we need to build an audience so that, you know, when I'm begging people on my hands and knees, uh, not like that, but, you know, begging people uh, f- for their for their love and, and attention and for their gift and of um, their presence, I can say to them, hey, we have um, 80 million listeners. And then, of course, they'll be, 80 million? Yeah, I'll come on the show. But uh, we, we do have, just so you know, a pretty good uh, foundation of you there now. And, and that's mainly because you've been so damn nice um, with sharing the podcast to your friends and family and dogs and kittens. Uh, yeah, yeah. So please carry on doing that. iTunes is a really good way to do that. Um, and also, let's be honest, Facebook. You know, you get on the old Facebook wall and and, and, and your life changes. You share that stuff people start sharing it uh, it's a fantastic thing just put a link up there why don't you do it why it would be great for you you know and, and, and yeah then we can get people like gina miller on the show because our popularity will be so immense and our power will be never never ending i don't know what that means anyway I, I think i'm going a bit mad because essentially at work all i do is listen to game of thrones at the moment i've got the audiobooks um via audible and it's they are amazing like these these books will blow your mind the detail it, it it's astonishing how does that come from one man's mind but we can't get a brexit deal done it it's, it's astonishing to me maybe we should put george rr R. martin in, in charge of this for those of you who don't know who george rr R. martin is he's the author of game of thrones and i'm well i'm really really thrilled to say that he's going to be our guest next week and i'm going to grow wings and fly to mars and eat the cheese that grows there anyway guys enjoy enjoy the rest of your week i'm gonna do my best to calm down actually do you know what i'm gonna do this i'm gonna promote a show in london so there's a show in london that is possibly the funniest thing i've ever seen it's called graham of thrones so it's obviously a parody of game of thrones it's in london uh, it's, it's in the Charing Cross area. I think I, I, I think it's the Soho Theatre. So 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 you know you're gonna have to forgive me here. You're gonna have to Google Graham of Thrones in London. But if you are based in London, it'll blow your boobs off. It's that funny. I was I was in a I don't know. I was quite down about two three months ago, and my wife and I went to see it uh, down in Horsham. It was on tour, and I, I I've never cried at comedy before ever. And I've I've seen the lot, man. I've seen like Stuart Lee, Bridget Christie, the lot, right? And that's two comedians. That's a lot. And this, my God, is funny. It's got everything, man. Everything. Uh, and it's only a three. I think there's three cast members. They do about a billion and a half costume changes, a little bit of ad lib, uh, but but mainly just genius comedy writing. So yeah, go go and check that out if you can. And I'll, I'll see you. I'll see you probably there, and if I don't see you there, I'll see you next time on this this here podcast. So stay safe, yeah, carry on sharing and, and enjoying, and here's a little bit of a tribute to Rick Parfit from Status Quo. And, and you know what? Why not? Who gives a shit? See you later, guys. Bye. Where shall we start from today?
profit from It's, it's, it's amazing. It, it's just incredible. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, as, as a kid, I would never have believed it. As, as a kid, I would never have believed it. As a, as a kid, I would never have believed it.